Would you look with me to the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew this morning? Please find your place there if you will. And uh, I want to tell you that the, the message this morning and then those that will follow it in the next couple of weeks are going to be very helpful to many of you who are new to us. If you're a guest today for the first time or you've kind of been to North Place for the last few weeks or a few months, it'll help give you great insight to what makes us tick as a church. It'll give you insight into our strategy. It will give you insight into our vision. I'm talking more biblically and theologically this morning, but in the next weeks I'll talk more in detail and more practically. For those of you that have been with us for a long time, maybe years, uh, maybe decades, what I'll be saying today and over the next couple of weeks will simply clarify for you uh, some of the things we've already said. It will restate with more clarity why we've made some decisions we have made and why we are charting the course that we are charting as a church. Albert Einstein said this, one of the greatest minds of modern history said, out of complexity, find simplicity. Out of complexity, find simplicity. In Matthew chapter 22, you have Jesus, the greatest leader of all time, talking to us about how to take the complex and make it simple. In Matthew 22, verse 34 When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together in the same place, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Notice that. A lawyer asked him a a question to test him and said, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. I don't know if you realize it or not, but there is a revolution happening right under your nose. It's a coup d'etat against the ridiculous complexity of our lives. People are sick of their worlds spinning out of control. Their families, their business life, life in general has become so complicated and so complex that people are longing for simplicity. They are revolting in their personal lives against this complexity and church leaders along with them are revolting in the church as well. I remember growing up as a student, the talks that I received from the counselors in my high school about being a well-rounded student. They told me that colleges were less interested in a bookworm who made all A's and that was socially unengaged than they were with a student who had a few B's sprinkled on their transcript but were involved in the community and service projects, connected to church, choir, sports, and on and on. So, many students like myself busted our backsides to keep our grades up while we and our parents who couldn't afford to pay for our college pushed us to be the well-rounded student so we could get the scholarships. We enhanced our student resumes by playing year-round sports. It wasn't good enough just to play basketball, but we needed to be involved in other things, so we did basketball and football and baseball and everything else necessary to be that well-rounded student. And while we were there, we were involved in FFA, Future Farmers of America, FBLA, Future Business Leaders of America, FCA, Future Christians of America. No, I'm kidding. That's Fellowship of Christian Athletes. We were involved in the National Honor Society. We volunteered in the community. We were engaged in church on and on because the myth was well-rounded students are the ones that get the scholarship. 
The result of that myth was a creation of complexity and what happened was most of us as students were involved in everything and we were our best at nothing. Because well-rounded or complexity often produces average. Or in the case of somebody like me, a stereotypical type A person who is a perfectionist at everything, anything you're involved in, you have to be the best because the slogan of a type A perfectionist is second best is first worst. So you drive yourself because a B is as bad as an F. Because you drive and drive and drive. And for me and students like me who were pushed into being well-rounded and we had to have our hand in everything and did things we really didn't even want to do so we'd have a chance to get a scholarship in college, it pushed us to the brink of insanity. And in many occasions, it made us average at several things instead of really good at the passion of our heart. As a parent, Haley and I have revolted against this complexity and refused to put that yoke of burden on our children in the same way it was put on us. And I don't know if they're telling the same things now that they were then. My children aren't in high school yet. But I know that then it was difficult for us. And we are watching other parents with children our same ages make the same decisions and join this revolt against complexity. You watch it. I mean, just use sports, for example. Used to, kids played different sports depending on what season it was. And I know some people still do. But as children get serious about sports and want to compete uh, in, a, in a high school or junior high level in large schools in Texas, they stop playing a different sport every season and they commit to one sport and become really good at it. And they become a one-sport family because they become average at three or really good at one. The same narrowing of focus and simplifying the complex is happening around hobbies. It is happening around school and it also needs to happen around church because families are so busy that they can't be involved in everything yet if you do church today the way we used to do church we had church on Sunday morning with Sunday school combined with it we expected people to come back on Sunday night we expected people to come back on Wednesday night and then we had children's ministries and youth ministry programs and men's prayer meeting on 6 uh, o'clock Tuesday morning and women's meeting on 6 o'clock Thursday night and there was visitation on Monday night and prayer meeting on Saturday night and if you were really spiritual you went to all of those things And so, what we said, we were a church for the family, but if you were spiritual enough to be at everything we created as a program, you never saw your family. We were part of the problem as a church of fragmenting the family because we had events and disconnected programs that were not ingrained ingrained into a process of creating disciples. And our success was how many people we could get to an event. We never asked the question, did it really change their life? Instead of having a process to create disciples, we did more because activity made us sound like we were really engaged and we were a church that was on the move and we were up to something. But the church needs to join the simple revolution, a revolution against the complexity of our lives. Pay attention. When I use the word simple, your mind may jump to easy and that's not the intention. Simple is not a synonym for easy. Simple is the opposite of complex. Simple is not easy. It is not easy to simplify your life in a complex world as an individual. And it is not simple for a church leader to simplify a 90-year-old church with all of its traditions and its expectations. Simple is not easy in your personal life. And simple is not easy in the church. I want us to take a journey this morning. And I'm going to continue that journey over the next several weeks about what God is saying to us in this revolution. 
It is a revolution because people are hungry for simple because the world is so complex. The amount of information that is available to us is increasing and the result in a complicated and complex world are busier and busier lives. And in the midst of complexity, the deep-seated heart of humankind is crying out for something that is simple. They long for it, we seek it, we'll even pay for it, we dream of it because simple is in, simple works, people respond to simple. Ask some of the largest companies in America today and they will prove it. Look at Apple. Apple is one of the leaders in the technology field of the concept of simplicity. They pushed forward on the technological front with this idea. Matter of fact, if you go back to some of the earlier generations of the iPod, when they started these handheld devices that would play music and do many other things, hold photographs, the old iPod simply had one wheel that was a button. And by navigating that one wheel and pushing one button, you could play multiple thousands of songs, look at multiple thousands of images, watch movies, and do very things with one push and play button. The word plug and play, which Apple has helped make famous, is one of the concepts or mantras of the computer generation. Because the issue is, if we can make it simple, people are going to buy it. Even Apple's graphic design is a part of the simplicity revolution. Their logo used to be a multicolored apple, and they have simplified that to one basic white colored apple on very basic colored uh, computers. They, they are very basic, and they are very simple because they believe people buy into simplicity. Now, it's almost like there's a cult-like following with Apple. The people that use their equipment, the people that go into their stores. If you go into their stores, there are nice, neat edges. It's simple. It's only two or three colors. Everything is basic, basic, basic. Because in a world of complexity, people almost go in there as if it's a sanctuary. They spend hours in the Apple store, even if they don't intend on buying anything. Because they want to shut out the busyness of the world and connect. Apple has created a technological sanctuary for people to disengage from this world. And is all based on the concept of being simple. Now, I was the last PC person in our office. Uh, I I refused to drink the Kool-Aid. I refused to join the cult. I was going to hang out for the PC until I tried one. I tried an apple. They stuck it in my hands. I'm telling you, if you don't want to switch, don't drink the Kool-Aid, all right? I I, I drank the Kool-Aid. And and the reason is because it was user-friendly. What was 10 steps to get somewhere became one step. And all of a sudden, it was easy to navigate. It didn't take me long to learn the system. And I bought in. I drank the Kool-Aid. Now I'm part of the following. Why? Because I'm not technologically advanced. And it's easy. It's simple. It's user-friendly. And I probably shouldn't say this, but in the media booth, they're holding up all their Mac stuff right now back in the media booth. All the guys in the back. They gave me the Kool-Aid and I drank it. Apple knows simple works. Google knows it works. Google's one of the fastest growing companies in American history. And it's made the sophisticated technology behind search engines on the web easy when it comes to you looking at it from the outside in. They've skyrocketed as web users are flocking to use their search engine because of its simplicity. People love the simple look of Google's site. 75 plus percent of all web users use Google as their search engine. And if you go to Google, it is shocking. How much white space? Do you know how much money they could sell for advertisements on that white space? 
how much money they are losing by not having ads in the bottom of that white space. But they believe people are so longing for simplicity that they will forgo the advertising dollars on that white space because you will keep coming back and use their site more and more and they'll make dollars over the long haul because people want simplicity. So they forego the upfront dollars of many advertisers. There will be 20 to 24 words on the front of a Google search engine but when you go to Yahoo or MSN there will be hundreds and hundreds of words there and those words are cumbersome. Those words slow you down. Google believes users should not be assaulted with information that is not relevant or applicable to them because simplicity drives their process. Graphic designers know this. People in the postmodern era that were so busy creating all of this eclectic art and postmodern, they're coming back to simple, simple images of art and graphics. You watch it in the graphics industry. It's happening. Southwest Airlines knows it. Southwest Airlines and North America's most successful and profitable airline over the last 10 years because it's the most simple. It's not the fanciest. They're not the best planes in the world, but there are no assigned seats, just groups. And the earlier you buy your ticket, the better seat you get, unless you pay an upcharge to be in the business class. But it's still the same seat as everybody else. The food is minimal. Uh, there, there, there are no baggage charges. There are no hubs. Planes fly from the shortest distance between two points. Um, and they make a lot of money on being simple. Papa John's, one of my kids' favorite pizzas, Papa John's. I, I just can't tell the difference. I'm not a connoisseur of fine pizzas. But Papa John's has gone from being non-existent uh, nearly two decades ago, a little over two decades ago, to being the third largest pizza franchise in the United States of America right now. And the reason is because they have a commitment to simplicity. If you go to their website, you will find their mission statement. It says at Papa John's, we have a simple formula for success. Focus on one thing and try to do it better than anyone else. By keeping the Papa John's menu simple, we are able to focus on the quality of our product by using our only superior quality ingredients. And that commitment not to try what everybody else is doing, but to do what they do and do it well, to know what they're supposed to do and do it well, has skyrocketed them from non-existence to the third largest pizza franchise in the United States. There's a simple revolution going on in interior design. There's a simple revolution going on in marketing. Uh, You just follow it. You watch. So you get the point. Out there, outside, there is a simple idea that people long for simplicity in a complex world. Now, what you need to understand is this simple idea is not a new idea. Matter of fact, Jesus was both simple and a revolutionary. He was the founder of the simplicity revolution. He stepped into a complicated and polluted religious culture. It was cluttered with Sadducees and Pharisees and Herodians and Zealots and Essenes. And he didn't play by their rules, which upset them. He couldn't stand their hypocrisy. He was so repulsed by their religious superiority that he chose to hang out with tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes instead of with the religious crowd. You see, the religious leaders of that day have developed a very complicated religious system that had 613 laws in it. They chose the number 613. Listen, this was all symbolic. They chose the number 613 because that was how many separate letters there were in the text containing the Ten Commandments. And so they looked and found 613 commandments in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, known as the Law, and they divided that list of 613 commands into a list of affirmative commands, the to-dos, and a list of negative commands, the don'ts. 
There were 248 affirmative commands, there were, and one for every part of the human body as they understood it. There were 365 negative commands, one for each day of the year. And then that list was further divided into binding commands and non-binding commands, and they spent their days as religious leaders in the synagogue debating over the accuracy of their divisions and which command was 612 and which command ought to be 604, and they debated and debated and debated, and that friend is the bondage of religion it was that environment that Jesus stepped into and he has the ability to take the complex and make it simple a prime example of that is the passage I read to you when we started a moment ago in Matthew 22 Jesus had been attempted to be tricked by the Sadducees and uh, they, he, he stumped them. Literally, Matthew twenty two thirty four 34 said he silenced the Sadducees. And so the Pharisees, now another religious group that had a little debate over those 613 laws and rules, come back and they said, well, if the Sadducees couldn't get him, we'll catch him in the middle of a crowd and we'll try to stump him and we'll try to stop him. We're going to humiliate him. So this revolutionary that is gaining momentum in our culture, pulling people away from our 613 rules into another way of living, we've got to stop him and so we're going to stump him. So they send one of the smartest guys they have to ask him a loaded question and the lawyer comes to him and says, which of these 613 laws is the greatest commandment of any in the law? They've been debating this in the synagogues for years and they've argued and debated and turned a religion into it and so they're going to try to stump Jesus because the people want to know, you're really a rabbi and powerful as you say you are, now you answer that question we've been trying to answer. Which law of all those 613 rules is the greatest law in the eyes of God? you really the son of God, tell us that answer. And Jesus responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. I want you to think about the significance of that moment. He said all the law and he threw in the prophets are all summed up in these two statements. He was not lowering the standard of the law. He was not abolishing the law. He was capturing the spirit and the essence of the law in one mission statement. He said all of the law and the prophet hangs on this. Love God and love people. He summed up 613 commands in two commands. He took the complexity and the advancement of the law in a very religious age and made it very simple. You see, Jesus was a rabbi. And in that day and time, a rabbi was known to have a yoke. A yoke was a reference to the rabbi's teaching. So some rabbis were guilty because they were so committed to these 613 laws that were symbolical to the letters of the, uh, of the Ten Commandments connected to the number of the parts in the body, to the number of days in the year. I mean, binding and non-binding, affirmative and negative. There were all of these com- uh, 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 bondages. And so a rabbi that committed himself to those laws, often his yoke, or his teaching on his followers would, was, was not full of grace. It was full of, it literally killed the life of its followers. It was legalism. So Jesus comes along as a rabbi and he steps onto that legalistic teaching where the rabbis were putting the yoke of legalism on the necks of their followers. And Jesus said to them in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, 
all ye who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest in your soul. If you're tired of the complexity, he says, of all of this religiousness and the complexity that is going on and that yoke that your rabbi has put on you is killing you, take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He was teaching in stark contrast to the religious rabbis of his day. He was not offering a complicated long set of rituals, rules, and regulations. He was offering grace. He was offering relationship with God. You see, Jesus is not into clutter. He doesn't like anything that clutters your life and gets you disconnected from God. Anything that stands in the way of you coming into intimate relationship with God is clutter. And he doesn't like clutter. There's a story in the book of Mark, chapter number 11, and it's a popular story. Some of you remember it. It's the day we see Jesus almost as mad as he ever was. He went into the temple and he grabbed the money changer's table and he threw it over and he cleared out the temple. You'll remember that day. We've acted that out in passion dramas here on the, pl- the stage around Easter time. We've talked about it. You've heard about it all your life. Mark 11 gives you a detailed account of that story. But it actually shows you in Mark 11, I'll let you read it in your own devotional time, that there were actually three things that aggravated Jesus so miserably about it. And it was because the clutter that was coming in between the people and God. One of the first things that aggravated him is because people were buying and selling in the temple. Now don't misunderstand me. He wasn't mad because people were buying and selling because outside the temple they had always bought and sold. They had to buy sacrifices in order to present to God. That was their system of worship at the time. So he was not mad that they were buying and selling. It was that the buying and selling that used to happen outside the temple was now brought inside the temple and the buying and the selling was distracting the prayer and the worship of God and it angered him. But there was something else that angered him. The Gentiles, who were the non-Jews, who came to worship, they had to exchange their Gentile money for Jewish money in order to be able to buy the sacrifice to give to God. And the Jews that were doing that, the leaders there that were exchanging the money, were cheating the Gentiles in their exchange rate, and they were profiting them under the table. That's why Jesus threw the table over to expose what was going on under the table in the exchange rate. He was angry because the spiritual leaders were cheating the people that were coming to worship in his house clutter but there's something else that made him mad it's that because the outer court area the Gentiles couldn't go into the inner court where the Jews could go so that they had to stay in the outer court in the outer court area where the Gentiles could worship there was, there was a major part of the city that people had to go from one side of the temple to the other and they normally would walk around they used to in honor for the house they would walk all the way around and it would take a long extra time to get to this side over here but now the, dis- the disrespect for the house of God had grown so much that instead of walking around, they would walk through the court of the Gentiles to get from point A to point B. It'd be the equivalent of this. You and I are in here, we're preaching this morning or we're worshiping and, and, and we're trying to focus on God and His Word. And there's somebody maybe that has a child in the infant nursery right outside that door, but they're in this hallway. And instead of walking all the way into the foyer and around, which is what reverence would do, they open that door right there have no indication or clue or care about what we're doing. They walk right through here, pay us no attention, and they walk right in there to get their baby. That's what was happening in the court of the Gentiles, and Jesus was furious. He was so angry, and his behavior in that temple gives an amazing insight to the heart of God. He was adamantly opposed to anything that gets in the way of people encountering him. 
He quoted from Isaiah in Mark eleven seventeen and said, Isn't it written in Isaiah that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But he said, You have turned it into a den of thieves. He doesn't like clutter keeping people from God. It happens in our own lives. We're so busy. It seems like we got more technology than we ever had and we spend more time fixing the technology that is supposed to make life easier that we don't get anything done. I mean, we have, we, we have things that do stuff so much faster than my grandfather did, yet he, he had more time to take a break than I do. Why do we have stuff that's supposed to make things so much faster and easier and quicker, and yet we have less free time than they did? Life is complex. Look, busy... One way to remember busy is being under Satan's yoke. Because the devil don't have to get you to stumble and fall immorally. All he's got to do is keep you so busy you don't have time to connect with God. And then you start fulfilling 613 laws instead of really knowing Jesus. That's his goal is to keep you busy and complex. I'm going to make a recommendation to you, especially those of you men, especially, but all of you who are busy, busy people. I read a book. Haley will tell you it saved our marriage, saved our ministry. Not that we were on the verge of any kind of trouble, but long term as our lives were to get more busy and complex, that little book that you can read in probably 45 minutes to an hour literally changed the way I live my life. It was called Choosing to Cheat. It's written by Andy Stanley, the son of Charles Stanley, who pastors one of the largest churches in America in Georgia right now. And Andy Stanley said, there are more things in a gifted, talented, or busy, engaged person's life than they'll ever have to do. In the normal person's life, you will never be able to do everything you want to do. You will never be able to do anything you're, everything you're supposed to do. You just can't. You can't be as good at everything as you need to be. You can't give your family your whole heart and your job your whole heart and everything else your whole heart. He said, so the point is, in your lifetime, before you die, you're going to cheat something. It's a given. You're going to cheat something. You're going to cheat your family. You're going to cheat your work. You're going to cheat your career. You're going to cheat your hobbies. You're going to cheat something because there's not enough hours in the day to do it all. And he said, you have to be selective in what you cheat. Choose to cheat. Because don't give your life away to your career or your hobbies and cheat your family along all the way. You have to cheat the right things in your life. And there's some practical advice in there on how to cheat the right things. It, it was one of those things that helped me get my personal life in gear so that I didn't let the demands of life clutter out the most important things of life, God and family. But churches have become cluttered as well, not just our lives. So cluttered that people have a difficult time encountering God and the powerful message of Jesus Christ. So many, so cluttered that people are so busy doing church and they don't have time to be the church. And I really believe we take this simple revolution into our own lives. We can take this simple revolution into our own churches and it will make us better followers of Jesus Christ, more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Tom Rainer and Eric Geiger uh, are writers, authors, and they wrote a book, uh, started in 2004, it's called Simple Church. I didn't pick it up until a few weeks ago and actually read it. I've heard about it for years. And much of what I'm sharing to you today statistically and some of the ideas that I'm sharing with you come straight from the book Simple Church. I picked it up and it was saying the things I've been trying to do here for the last three years and, and, and it helped me tremendously. They went throughout the United States and they surveyed hundreds of pastors and churches. They surveyed pastors that, that were leading churches churches that were stagnant and declining, and they surveyed pastors and churches that were leading uh, congregations that were vibrant and growing. And this is what they found out. 
Churches with a simple process for reaching and maturing people are expanding the kingdom of God. Church leaders that have designed a simple biblical process to make disciples are effectively advancing the movement of the gospel. Simple churches are making big impact. But on the opposite hand, complex churches are struggling and anemic. Churches without a process or churches that have a complicated process for making disciples are floundering. There are cluttered and complex churches that are out there. There are more of them than there are simple churches, but those are stagnant and declining. Do you know that uh, uh, 19 out of 20 churches in America are stagnant and in decline? And because that bothered them, they started doing this research and they found the one church out of 20 that was actually growing had the characteristics of simplifying the complications of doing church and people were buying into it in church just like they did in Apple and everywhere else. And they find the principles written in Scripture. What I'm sharing with you is Jesus stepped into a religious world that was overcomplicated and made it very simple. The research showed that the churches that were so complicated, it was affecting them from growing. Now... Back to what Jesus said in this simplicity revolution. It's in Matthew chapter 23. You remember when he got, he was continuing some of his anger over the temple thing. And he's, he really does not, uh, he loved everybody. But he, he just didn't mince his words for religious leaders and their hypocrisy. And uh, their complexity. So in Matthew 23, he told the Pharisees specifically that they were like fancy cups. Elegant on the outside and beautiful, laced with gold. You're like fancy cups that got mold growing on the inside, hadn't been washed in years. You've been shining the outside of the cup so that it looks good, but if somebody were to go over and look on the inside of the cup, there's bacteria growing on the inside. You're a fancy cup that's dirty and hadn't been cleaned. And he also told them in that same conversation that they were like whitewashed tombs, top of the line coffins. Nice, neat, laced with gold and silver. Everything was presentable. And people might even turn their head at the spectacle about how beautiful that coffin was. But beneath the surface, there was death. Beneath the surface, there were emptiness, just like a lot of churches. The clutter makes things look okay. The activity even makes things look good. The busyness oftentimes is a disguise for lack of life. Complexity is the great cover-up. Churches can be fancy coffins. Several of the complex leaders that were surveyed admitted the busyness of their church and said that it has made them void of life. They have churches full of events on their calendar, but they have no real direction. They have activity going on all the time. There are cars in their parking lot all the time, but it's not having any lasting impact on the people that attend their church on a regular basis. No amount of activity can produce life change. It gives the impression, but things are happening, but where is the real life? February of 2009. I was struggling as a pastor because we were having great events and people were coming to our services and we could have a special day and have uh, extra several hundred people show up and we could break the 3,000 mark on Easter Sunday and push 3,500. And, and, and I, I mean, I, that used to be what excited me, but then I started asking the question, but what difference is it making in people's lives? If they're coming to the church every week and we've got families so spread out that they're here every night of the week, they're never eating a meal together at their table because they feel they've got to be at every event in order to be spiritual. What difference are our events and our programs making in the people's lives? And while I was praying, I mean, I was in one of the most uh, meaningful times of prayer in my entire life, and I was praying about the church, and the Lord whispered to me, Brian, your church has schizophrenia. And I had never thought about an organization having schizophrenia. 
I never read that anywhere, never thought about it. I, didn't, I don't have an MBA. I hadn't gone to organizational psychology classes. I never thought about any of that. And, the, and now I've read about it since. But until that moment, that was the first time I'd ever heard that an organ, God said, your church has schizophrenia. And I said, why, Lord? And I began to think about it. We have people that grew up in this church. We have people that came here from other churches. We have people that have no religious backgrounds at all. We have Baptists, Methodists, Pentecostals. We've got Lutherans and Catholics and everybody comes with a certain expectation of what good church is. They come with a paradigm of what success is in the church. And the reason that was okay for me is because I'm a big tent guy. I can get along with anybody. I can splash around in anybody's boat. That's okay with me. I love the Lutherans and the Catholics and the Baptists and the Methodists, but the problem is when we get down to the nitty-gritty and doing church and there's not one common vision everybody is sold out to, the one you brought with you is the one you think is the best. And he said, preacher, it's time for you to lead. I didn't want to get up and say this is where we're going because what if you didn't want to go there? It means you got off the bus. And I want as many people on the bus as I can. He said, Brian, give them the dignity of getting off the bus. Tell them where I've told you to go. Draw a line in the sand. Be clear. State the purpose. Say this is who we are. This is where God's sending us. And let them make a choice. The simple revolution began in me in 2009 before I picked up the book six weeks ago. And we began to do some things then to try to prepare our hearts to make disciples. I, I, I got three kids and my family has a busy life. And if I'm going to be at the church, I want to know it's making a difference. I want to know that what we're doing is connected to what we're going to be doing next week that's connected to what we're going to be doing six months so that when my kids come up here, they're not memorizing a scripture that's not connected to what they learned last week that's not going to be connected to what they... It's all a part of a strategy somebody actually thought about. They didn't just flip through the Bible and say, man, i got to teach class today. Let's see what I can... Oh, God, give me a word. Give me a word. <laughs> That's the way we've been doing church a long time. If this is the most important thing in the world that matters, it's worth our investment. It's worth our time. It's worth a revolution so that we leverage what you invest in it with your time and your family. I want to... I'll share something with you. Jesus said a moment ago, I, I shared it with you from Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the next couple of weeks, I want to become, I've been 30,000 feet here and I want to get more practical in the next couple of weeks about what that's looking like and why we made decisions we made and, and how that's going to look in the future some of the things in our children's ministry and all kinds of things that God's doing. It's exciting to me. But I'll talk about that in a couple weeks. Let me ask you this before we go about you. Is your life so cluttered that it's not making a difference? Are you so busy that you can't find God anywhere in all of the mess? Jesus said in a world of religious complications, when everybody was put in the yoke of legalism that snuffed out life, he said, look, take my yoke. I'm gentle. I'm humble. I want to give you a yoke of grace and relationship, not legalism and religion. Put my yoke on you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. This morning, some of you need to take his yoke upon you because you're doing everything but the one thing. Psalm 27, 4, David said, One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek after all the days of my life. I may behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. And that's where we all are when we first get saved. Jesus is all that matters. Nothing else matters. We read the Bible, we pray, we go to church, nothing else matters. And then the, 
that busy thing starts happening and Jesus stops being the one thing and becomes one of the things of our life and before long he's not a thing at all so what I'm asking you to do maybe it's been years that Jesus has just been a thing and not the thing in your life I'm asking you to rediscover his yoke that's easy and his burden that's light this morning and reconnect with God today cheat the other things in your life not God and family cheat the right things Simplify in a season of complexity. Join the coup, the revolution. Fight against it. Make the main thing the main thing. This week, um, I don't have time to share this as deeply as I'd like to this morning. So, last week I had one of the most productive weeks I've ever had in my life. I'm a I'm a list maker and a checker offer, and I got to check it all off before I can sleep good at night. And I had a productive week this week. I read three or four books and wrote several sermons and praying for our uh, small group retreat and was on the board meeting that helped found the, we're founding the beginning of that human trafficking home that I told you about in the first of the year. That's all happening and it took about 10,000 steps forward this week. And all kinds of things happened this week. And yet I'm thinking, I'm driving to work on Thursday thinking, man, Buddy, I have, you know, I don't know a whole lot about that movie Limitless, but I hear he takes a pill and he can do anything he wants to do. It's like I took his pills or whatever, and I was just knocking it out. I'd want to, a world of efficiency that I hadn't been to. I was feeling good about that. Really good, because I'd actually called my mom three times last week, and I don't do that good. I, I get in trouble for not doing that enough. But I called my mom. I, I called, she didn't call me. I called her three times. I called my grandma and talked to her. And as a part of that, I was driving to work. And I thought, you know, I'll call my stepmom. I hadn't been close to my stepmom because of some dysfunction in our family. My dad just passed away and her heart's broken. And so I called to check on her. I was ready for her to pick up the phone and I was upbeat. I've been thinking about all this stuff I've been accomplishing. She wasn't there. And the answer machine picked up. It was my dad's voice. It's the first time I've heard his voice since the last time I talked to him 30 minutes before he died. And it destroyed me. It caught me off guard. I pulled into the church and I cried like a baby. Emotions that I had held down for months all came out of me at once. And I just shook like a baby and I sobbed. I tried like a man. I fought it. I bit my lip. I I did everything and it beat me. It beat me and I lost control. She called back during that moment. And it made it worse because she called from my dad's home number, which has his name, and he called me back, it looked like, on the caller ID. And it just made it worse. It sent me deeper. It was a blessing. It was a blessing. Because I sat there in that truck, and the Holy Spirit reminded me, you can't do this by yourself. You can make all the checks off your list. You can be as productive as you want to be. You can go 10 weeks just like this. But you're going to break. You can't do this without me. You've got to have a Sabbath. You've got to have a moment. You've got to know how weak you are. And that moment made me realize I can't do this. I'm trying a different yoke, not his. And as painful as that moment was, it brought healing and it brought insight into my busyness. I thank God for that moment. I want to challenge you to take his yoke upon you. Would you stand with me all over this place? Prayer team, would you position yourself here this morning and prepare your hearts to minister to people today?
these people are not coming this morning and their success is not based on how many people show up at the altar this morning. That's not, their, their passion in life is just to be available. If you're in this room this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, they're, they're here to help you. If you've been away from God for a long time because of busy and clutter and you sense the call of the Holy Spirit to reconnect with Him in a very real way, they're here to help you. Or if there's a sickness or a disease or a marital issue or a financial burden that is part of the clutter that is getting in the way of you connecting with God, you need somebody to pray with you about that, they're available for you to pray. If you, you, it doesn't matter if you never met Christ or you served Him for 40 years, hear it today like it's the first time. Take my yoke upon you, He says. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I believe you can find solace in the middle of complexity in these altars of prayer today, they will be available for you. Now, Lord, I pray blessing upon this congregation. I pray you'll bless them and keep them. I pray you'll make your face shine down upon them. I pray you'll be gracious to them, that you'll turn your countenance their direction and you will give them peace. And out of the busy clutter and complexity of our lives, pull us back to the one thing that David talked about in Psalm 27.4, the only thing that really matters. In Jesus' name.